Hi, you're listening to Deep Cut. I'm Wilson. I'm Ben. I'm Eli. Each episode, we talk about two movies by one director, their most popular film, and a personal favorite chosen by one of us. We'll also talk about each director's life and career to bring in context that may help us view their movies as they wanted us to. This week, Eli chose the director Thomas Alfredson. Which movies are we looking at today, Eli? So first, we're going to be talking about. Okay, big question: Which one's your popular pick? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's let's clear <laughs> let's clear the air because um, Ben and I were talking before before you came on the call, and we were, I was like, which which one's the the most famous pick here? Okay, so my thinking with this, we're going to do this episode a little bit of a twist, right? Because normally the most popular pick would be something that is a big hit, everyone knows it because it's good. Yes. But we're going to be talking about as the popular pick. 2017's The Snowman, which is more well-known because it's notorious for being a little bit messy. Because of memes. <laughs> Dear Mr. Police. <laughs> memes make you popular. I always imagined the voice of the letter to be this, this like, Smeagol-type voice. Like a, Dear Mr. Police. <laughs> Someone like like a like a non-humanoid creature. You had all the clues. <laughs> <laughs> and that's our show. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, everyone. <laughs> we'll be talking about the snowman as the popular pick. And then as the deep cut, just one of my favorite movies, period, is 2011's Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Yeah. What a movie. I'm I'm really glad that you guys dug it. I saw your letterbox reviews. Wait, Ben, do you want to read yours aloud? Yeah. Mine aloud. <laughs> do a dramatic reading of my letterbox review, which is just very important. It's incredible, this review. Imagine me after watching this. Damn. That was a lot of work for my big dumb brain. <laughs> <laughs> and it was really, okay, me, it really was a lot of work. It was, it was. That's no joke. That's no joke. I was very confused for a lot of it. I was watching it this time around. Just thinking about like, oh, this must be really confusing on the first time you're watching it. <laughs> yeah. I've seen Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy maybe like six or seven times. Wow. On top of that, you read the book. Yes. Yeah. I love John le Carré. This sparked my love for, for John le Carré for sure. I'm going to give a little bit of an entree to Thomas Alfredson. Thomas Alfredson is a Swedish film director. By my count, he has directed seven theatrical features and a handful of TV movies. His early movie and TV directing was in comedy, and then he moved into dark comedy and finally into horror, thriller, and crime. I did try to find his earlier comedy work, but it's apparently very difficult to find in the States. So I've seen his latest three movies, which are 2008's Let the Right One In, about a lonely boy's friendship with a girl his age who turns out to be a vampire, 2011's Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, which is a Cold War espionage mystery based on John le Carre's novel of the same name, and 2017's The Snowman, which is a serial killer or detective movie. <laughs> it's incredible that you could just, like, describe it as a <laughs> serial killer detective movie, because I, I don't know if you could describe it as a movie. <laughs> oh, whoa. <laughs> I mean, when you get to the bones of it, it's, it's just like a genre pick. Yes, 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 yes. Both The Snowman and Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy are Alfredson's only English language films to date. He was born Hans Christian Thomas Alfredson in Lindingo, Stochoms, Ian, Sweden in 1965. 
I deserve an award for saying all those words. Thank you. Not necessarily right, but... <laughs> yeah, no, not at all. <laughs> the attempt is admirable. He seems like sort of a soft-spoken, mannered guy in interviews. A quotation that I thought was funny was he said, quote, I always felt like a stranger and an old, grumpy old man, end quote. It's just a thing he said about his childhood. <laughs> so his father was a comedian, writer, and director, Hans Hasse Alfredson. His father wasn't home much, and it sounds like that led to some rough spots in his childhood, but he participated in his father's productions every summer. So when he was five or six, he already knew that he wanted to work in movies. He talks about creating new realities as an escape from hard times when he was a kid. He was also a drummer when he was a kid, which he says helps him when he's editing. So he started out doing editing work early in his career. Alfredson helped to create the Swedish television channel TV4, where he directed some TV movies, and it seems like they were mostly comedies. Then in 1999, Alfredson joined the Swedish comedy group Killinganget. Ooh, I like that pronunciation. <laughs> Thank you. I, might have, I probably butchered it. So, well, <laughs> What does it is. mean? It's named after one of the main members of the group. Oh. Why does he get top billing? It's so strange. <laughs> Maybe his name is Gange and it's about killing him. Killing Gange. <laughs> <laughs> so Alfredson was the director of the comedy group and they made four TV movies together in their first year. And then in 2004, he directed their only feature film, Four Shades of Brown. What is <laughs> some what race is this movie? Thing? <laughs> no, I, I'm just thinking of poop. <laughs> <laughs> that's all I'm thinking about when we call a film Four Shades of Brown. <laughs> but that's me. It's a uh, it's four it's four vignettes about family and fatherhood and they're kind of tragic comedies or black comedies oh so alfredson had two other feature comedies before four shades of brown which were 1995's bert the last virgin which is a comedy about <laughs> adolescence based on a popular children's book series in sweden and 2003's office hours which is a workplace comedy alfredson directed comedies until 2008 when his adaptation of the horror novel let the right one in premiered the film played in a number of international festivals and won awards, including Best Narrative Feature at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. Alfredson directed as well as co-edited Let the Right One In. So, Ben, you've seen Let the Right One In, correct? I've seen it. Have either of you seen its English adaptation? No. Nope. Nor have I. Okay. One of my friends just, my friends just really liked this movie, and then I think he told me the name of it, and I misremembered it as Let the Right One In. Oh. Because it's called Let Me In. Yeah. Yeah. So then when I was watching this one, I was like, where's Chloe Grace Moretz? <laughs> so after Let the Right One In, he was pretty hot. And he kind of poo-pooed the Swedish entertainment industry. He publicly said that it was, quote, drained of power, courage, and gravity, end quote. Which is pretty harsh. So in July of 2009, he signed on to direct an adaptation of John le Carre's 1974 novel, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. And that premiered in 2011, and it was a success critically and commercially. It made $81 million on a reported $30 million budget, which is pretty good for a art house spy movie. Also, for Wilson, the cinematographer was Hoyte van Hoytema. Yes. Oui? What is he most known for? Interstellar, I would say. Just working with Nolan. Yeah. In general. Yeah. Tenet. Tenet. Dunkirk. Funkirk. 
<laughs> Funkirk. <laughs> but like an all-time great cinematographer. Like you you know you're you're in for a, a beautiful looking movie when you have Hoyt Van Hoytema. Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy was critically hailed for its mood, direction, and performances, though it's often criticized for being opaque. I think that that's mm-hmm. an asset of the movie. Alfredson said that he was drawn to the book because it was, quote, like a huge crossword and some crosswords want to be solved, end quote. So I'm bringing him into Deep Cut for us to discuss primarily because I really love Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. It's maybe a top 10 movie for me. As I said, it got me into John le Carré. I saw it, you know, an early point in when I was falling in love with movies. I saw it for the first time in theaters since then. I've kept on returning to it over the years. I remember the first time I saw it being completely confounded, but I felt that engine under the surface, mm-hmm. that energy and the mood that coheres the piece. And of course, we're going to get into all that a lot more, but give me a brief preview of your reactions. I loved it. I am confounded. I would say I got maybe a basic skeleton of the plot i was pretty like confused for for a lot of it it w- my my brain was working very hard to just like connect all the dots there's so many white men that it's just like really <laughs> just hard half of all the british actors that you know even if it's people that i know like i i don't know i, I like at least benedict cumberbatch like stands out but like some of them man I, they really were blending um <laughs> a lot of bland white british men and one of the characters names is actually roy bland <laughs> i was watching this with my brother and then we would just start referring to everyone as their more well-known character which was just much easier so it would be like hey yeah. look at sherlock and then we'll be like hey look it's commissioner gordon doing something it really helps that that the main characters are famous actors they're easily recognizable so i think it helps even though like they were all like white dudes including tom hardy i I would i would say oh yeah being (laughs) mad max but aside from all like the mental gymnastics that you have to pull which i think are is worth it like i think this is a tonal masterpiece that's what makes it so enjoyable is that even though you don't really understand everything that's going on you feel the tension you feel the emotion within each scene that is enough for me that makes the movie for me because i know that with every revisit i'll have with this movie and the more knowledge that i have the greater the experience of watching this film is it's sort of like i don't know i was gonna use an onion but that's stupid like i don't know it's like sort of like those babushka dolls that you're like oh there's more and more inside to find out. There was a British miniseries of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy of the book before this movie, decades before. And the poster for that miniseries is those Russian nesting dolls. Oh. So that's really funny that you say that. Oh, wow. For a movie that seems very distanced and cerebral, there's a lot of emotion and mood, both atmospherically yeah. and for the characters. It's propelled forward at the start with like the really stunning cinematography and the score working hand in hand to sort of like push you through the the starting gate of the movie because they they're introducing a lot of concepts to you. But I feel like once you start spending time with these characters and sort of getting a basic idea of the relationship that they have to each other, the emotional drive comes through. It it, it takes time, but with more like knowledge and with more time with these characters it just grows 
I think for me, it was same, very confusing. I just don't know if I, I completely think that that's a thing I can gloss over. <laughs> that That's understandable. Considering the snowman is also confusing. Yes. Oh, well, the snow... I, okay. Well, we'll get into that. I'll get into that. It's, it's, not really a, it's not a one-to-one kind of comparison. Absolutely not. No, but I, I, I agree with Ben. Because I watched the snowman first. And then I watched Tinker Tailor's Soldier Spy. And then after coming out of Tinker Tailor's Soldier Spy, I was like, the one thing that stands out in this guy's filmography to me that his, are that his movies are are confusing. But like one's a, a, like a confusing good. And then one's a confusing like what went wrong. It's interesting that you can be confused, but like be okay with it and then be confused and be... Fuck that. I don't want to watch this. <laughs> I have a quotation that I think will help us get a handle on the confusing part of Alfredson's filmography. So I found in my research that he talks a lot about how he tries to respect the audience and treat them as grown-ups, as he calls it. For example, he says this, quote, To look at the audience as someone who is participating in the narration of the film is a good thing because you activate the viewers. Today, there are so many films that are just spoon-feeding the audience and making the audience passive by excluding every kind of mystery or every kind of insecure piece of information. So I think it's really great to see a film where you're invited to be considered as a grown-up and have your own opinion and view on what's going on, and that's what's brought you into a story, is when you're invited, end quote. I do think it's on purpose that there are pieces of information that are out of reach, particularly in Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy mm-hmm. and kind of incidentally in The Snowman. Yeah. I mean, he's directed one of my all-time favorite movies mm-hmm. and he also directed The Snowman. <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible. <laughs> I want to pose a few questions for us to consider as we're discussing these two movies today. What went wrong with The Snowman? <laughs> How do we reconcile these two movies? Do they have similarities? They affect each other's quality by being made by the same director. Are directors defined by missteps? And I have thoughts on all these questions, and I'm excited to discuss them with you both. Me too. I will give partially my thesis up top, which is that, no, I don't think Alfredson is defined by this. (laughs) I was looking at Sean Baker's review of The Snowman yesterday, and Baker says that I think that this is a speed bump for Alfredson more than the defining trend. And I completely agree with that. And I've also done some research into what happened with the snowman. So I'll be able to share that with you all. <laughs> what went down? <laughs> you can see some of like his hallmarks in <laughs> the snowman. Like, you can. Dude really loves cold movies. Like, he just likes movies in the cold. I saw Let the Right One In, which is also very cold. Like, it's set in the winter. And he's really into that kind of vibe. Not just setting, but also the way that he shows you things. Yeah. There's a kind of dryness to it that's not supposed to be a, a, a dig at him at all, but it is kind of how he presents situations in a lot of ways. And you get a bit of that in Tinker Tailor in a good way, but he's also a bit more, I would say, inventive in Tinker Tailor. And he has some really interesting choices in Let the Right One In as well. Yeah. I haven't seen Let the Right One In. And like, actually, these two were the first movies I've seen from Alfredson. Like, even though we can all agree that The Snowman is sort of like a misstep in his career, I I, I do think there are like some elements that, I don't know, I like particularly (laughs) enjoyed. (laughs) 
in this no i can't believe i'm gonna be the one that's defending this movie yeah but I, I do think it is very very beautiful to look at the landscapes are gorgeous i think they they shot norway very beautifully and the way that the scenes are lit like i think for both tinker taylor soldier spy and the snowman they're just pretty movies i approach watching the snowman with an appropriate level of like non sobriety like I was inebriated. I was slightly inebriated. <laughs> I had a good time. I like was laughing the whole the whole movie. What, like if you go in expecting a, a shit movie and and you prepare yourself for it, I, I think it, it's a it's a really fun experience. I was not inebriated, but I'll, <laughs> I'll say that I wouldn't go to bat for the snowman, but I would absolutely go to the bat for Alfredson. There are reasons why the snowman is the way it is. Basically, a lot of it has to do with the amount of time that they had. Mm -hmm. We'll get into it. I just personally don't really enjoy watching bad movies, even like <laughs> the ones that people are saying it's so bad, it's good. Like, I, I just do not enjoy the experience. And like watching it for the podcast was so honestly <laughs> aggravating. I can imagine you watching. I just like, no, you do not like bad movies. It's like I just don't want to deal with having to think about it when it, it's like there's a huge wall I gotta cross before <laughs> I start thinking about this as a critically a, as a viewer. I have to climb that wall of all the things that, that are wrong with this movie and yeah. then talk about not necessarily the merits but like I gotta like pull it apart as a bad movie or find some good parts <laughs> of it. It's just a tough experience for me but it's just me as a viewer like I just don't want to view of that wall but I've, i'm here now i've scaled the yeah. wall <laughs> but like what astounds me right like oh yes a, a bad script like that's not entirely alfred sin's fault but I, I like i i cannot forgive the the really dry acting <laughs> yes it's fine the dialogue is horrible and i i don't really understand the motivations of the killer which is probably the most important thing <laughs> in this movie and, like, I don't really understand Harry Hole icon, um, <laughs> Harry Hole. Um, but at least, like, I don't know, have these actors feel something? I don't know. It just felt so dry. Yeah. Sorry, do we have other things for us for you to get into, Eli? Oh, before sorry, we yeah. sorry. Eli. <laughs> deep? No, it's fine. <laughs> like, Wilson's ready to go. <laughs> Whoa, we'll go, we'll go. Hold the horses one moment. So at this point, it seems like Alfredson is kind of locking himself into an international career with an English language art house, mostly dark, introspective pieces, which I think is a little similar to like what Adam McKay is doing, going from comedy into drama. But add on top of that, the arc of a director making a successful foray out of his home country into the international mainstream film market. But then... From January to April 2016, he films The Snowman. But then. <laughs> yeah, big but. So there are two things that we need to do. The first is go over a little bit of a summary of the plot, because we've already mentioned some things that, if anyone hasn't seen the movie, I am afraid are going to be a little <laughs> bit confusing. And then I do want to give you some production history so that you can know how this thing came to be. So The Snowman follows Michael Fassbender as Detective Harry Hole, yes, that's right, <laughs> as he's investigating a serial killer whose calling card are 
building these snowmen who have blank expressions and mailing Detective Hole these notes that are poorly written and have little doodles of the snowmen with blank expressions, which is what Wilson was doing the voice of earlier. I showed you all the clues, <laughs> Mr. Policeman. <laughs> <laughs> The opening scene is something that seems like it's the backstory of Harry Hole, but it turns out to be the backstory of the killer and sort of his inciting motivation. The killer as a child, his mother had a boyfriend who was a policeman, and we see the killer watch the policeman hit his mother, and then the killer watches his mother drive into a frozen lake. And the idea is that this traumatizes him into becoming a killer, but then he decides to become a killer of women exclusively of female characters and not cops for some reason, even though it was a cop who was abusing his mother. It kind of makes no sense narratively and morally, to say the least. But like, I don't get why the killer doesn't become a killer of police at that point. I don't know. I think that would make the movie more coherent and less misogynistic. Is this an anti-women movie? It kind of is. It's right? kind of, it's, it's, it's a it's a bit misogynist, unfortunately. The stuff about abortion, I don't know. Ugh, yeah, that stuff gets really sticky and weird. So Detective Hole investigates this case, and he meets a number of different characters, including Rebecca Ferguson, who has a personal stake in the investigation because her father, Val Kilmer, was a detective who was investigating the case years earlier and got killed by the killer. Da, 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 da. It's kind <laughs> of messy, but those are the bones of what you need to know. To follow our conversation. Yeah, yeah, that's about <laughs> that's about <Yeah>. it. <laughs> now, what I really want to do is give you some background on the production, which helps explain the quality of the film. So originally, it was going to be directed by Martin Scorsese until the production for Silence came up. He dropped out, and Alfredson stepped on. The man dodged a bullet there. <laughs> <laughs> the financing reportedly came together very abruptly. And Alfredson said that they didn't have time to film the entire story because <laughs> of a rushed production schedule. And in post, he realized that a lot was missing. Around 10 to 15% of the story was missing. Reshoots took place later that year. It seems like with a new crew. I think you can tell. I think some shots look like they were filmed by a different crew. And then the editor is credited as Thelma Schoonmaker, Martin Scorsese's go-to editor. Shout out. But Claire Simpson, another famous editor of movies like Platoon, is also credited. So it's hazy as to who did what cutting anyway. I paused it during the movie and they're both credited, but they have separate title cards. Schoonmaker's comes on first and then Claire Simpson's comes on after. Wasn't it right after each other? It's right after remember. each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I was like, I was watching and I was like, Schoonmaker, I was like, what? And I had to like go back yeah. to make sure. I was like, oh, she edited this? I think right off the bat, that opening scene feels so rushed. Like these shots are begging to take longer. I don't know what happened with the edit at least is where something could have been salvaged. But where did it go wrong? <laughs> I'm trying to name multiple points where I think it went wrong. <laughs> I would say that, like, on a base, right? Like, I do think that there is a problem with the plot of the movie. And that is, like, a source material problem. Would you agree? I definitely agree. Like, the thing as a whole doesn't work. <laughs> the thing is a hairy hole doesn't work there are three screenwriters credited including one of the writers of the tinker tail soldier spy script peter strawn reports are that the script wasn't done by the time they started 
shooting. Right. On an episode of the podcast, How Did This Get Made, which is hosted by Jason Mantzoukas and Paul Scheer, there's an episode about the snowman that they recorded live. <laughs> nice. And an audience member speaks up about having worked on the movie. And <gasps> she saw earlier drafts of the script. There are vestiges of what used to be a part of this movie that exist in the final thing that no longer fit. Like how he's sleeping on a playground at the first time we see Harry Hole. That's because they were developing a backstory where he accidentally shot a child on a former case. There was a big question in the writing process about why the killer doesn't go after cops, but rather women, because he's angry at his cop father who drove his mother to kill herself. But that never locks up. As Wilson said, the motivation of the killer is completely messy. The thing is so confusing because it's set up in such a way where the prologue, you're not supposed to understand the prologue, right? Yeah. You could understand it as the backstory of Harry Hole. And then it becomes a reveal that it's actually not him, right? That, that could be a way to interpret yes. the prologue. Yes, yes, yes. What happens as a result of that choice is that Harry Hole has no backstory. We know nothing about him in the end. Other than he had a relationship with Charlotte Gainsbourg that didn't work out. But kind of did. Oh my god. I, the scenes between both of them are so weird. They're like so off-putting when they're interacting with each other. And also him with his not son, but he wants to be a father figure to this boy. Like, what was that whole relationship about? Like, what were, what were they trying to say? And wait, the other dude was also Gainsbourg's husband. And he's just there like this third wheel. Yep. And I didn't understand that at all. I got nothing for you. <laughs> so Oleg was originally supposed to be Harry's son, which would have made more sense. I thought he was his son the whole time. <laughs> Even after the multiple times where they were like, he is not your dad. Like, they're not your biological <laughs> son. I really thought that that was just a thing. I'm supposed to just know, like, he's the son. And like, like why else would he give a fuck about this dude? <laughs> why else? Oh... Uh... I think it's just so funny to see how many missteps this movie takes. Like, in wildly separate fields, I don't know, like the acting and the plot, or like the, the editing, every minute you, you can find something to, to critique about this movie. I like David Densick. <laughs> He's a good actor. Who did David Densick play? He played that creepy doctor who brought the woman to J.K. Simmons. Oh, yeah. In Tinker Tailor, he's Toby Esterhase. Yeah, Esterhase. he's right, great. Right, right. I always remember him because he has like a pretty big forehead. He All does. Right. Sorry. <laughs> he has a wonderful forehead. The the flashback with Val Kilmer and uh, Toby Jones, also just kind of weird. Like, I get why it's there. It's the backstory for Rebecca Ferguson's character, but it's weird. And Toby Jones is just a weird goatee, and it's, like, very distracting. <laughs> Going off of that, I have to tell you something about Val Kilmer, and I have to tell you something about Rebecca Ferguson. Val Kilmer, at the time of production, he was undergoing treatment for throat cancer, and he had an enlarged tongue that made it hard for him to say his dialogue. So all of his dialogue, it's all dubbed over, it's either delivered so that you can't see his mouth moving, or you can tell when he's talking that it doesn't add up. <laughs> and for Rebecca Ferguson, her character gets killed off because she was going to be played by Jennifer Lawrence, who only wanted to be attached for one movie. That's what? <laughs> also, Harry Hole was going to be played by Brad Pitt. Oh my god. Ooh. 
Wait, and what about the whole the the twin sister thing with Chloe Sevigny? That was just funny. That's a choice <laughs> that was made in reshoots. There was never supposed to be a twin. <laughs> and also, that snowman looks doof like like a dumbass. Like it, it looks so <laughs> stupid. <laughs> like whenever it came up, and it's the, the 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 way that its mouth is drawn or put on is the same every time it shows up. And I'm like, this is such a dumb looking... Like, I wouldn't even... I would just be like, kill me now. This is so stupid. <laughs> Are you talking about the drawing or the actual snowman? Both, both, both. Yeah, they both look bad. Like, <laughs> Is this a child committing these murders? I don't know. Kind of. Yeah. <laughs> no, nothing makes sense. Also, people living in Norway speak Norwegian. If you watch the TV show Scam, you would know that everyone in Oslo does not speak English. Okay, you just <laughs> brought that up to bring up Scam. <laughs> this happens all the time. You know that movies set in foreign countries are sometimes in English if they're made through an English yeah, movie like system. Yeah, Chernobyl is in Russia and everyone speaks That's English. True. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, you know what my favorite line in the snowman is? What? I have a line that I wrote down that's so stupid, but go back, go Eli. The like police chief walks up to Michael Fassbender and says, ah, the great hairy hole. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> so good. What's okay. yours? Oh, it's just a stupid line. It's like he grabs a file and he says, can I have this? And then and then I think it's Rebecca Ferguson's character. And she says, no. And then he just says, can I have this? In the same, like, the same exact line reading. There's no difference. And then she says, yeah, sure, take it. I'm like, what? What's going on? <laughs> this is the other guy in the staff. Like, oh, yeah, this yeah. other dude. Yeah, I remember that. See, it was so weird. He just goes, yeah, sure. And actually later on <laughs> in the film, he says, yeah, sure, in the exact same way. <laughs> There's one choice that you can directly compare between snowman and tinker tailor soldier spy which i think is kind of telling alfredson talks about how on tinker tailor soldier spy they were very purposeful about on whose face they are ending the scene in the edit mm -hmm. and that says a lot and then there's a scene in in the snowman when rebecca ferguson realizes that harry is like doing something wrong or missing or something and she walks she storms out of that library room the scene ends by tilting up to this random guy who watches her go. Like this random other detective who's like, everything okay? They keep showing that guy. And that's why I found it very weird. Like, it felt like he was supposed to be another side character. But like, I don't even know why he's there. It's so strange. Yeah. Like the killer. Oh, it's the killer. <laughs> like then they set up in the library and then why are they in a library and who are all these other people around? Also, that's like the craziest looking library ever. It's what very empty. That, that yeah. room is missing all the details that Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy is so lush with. Mm -hmm. What mm -hmm. I think happened on this movie is that there just wasn't enough time. You listen mm -hmm. to interviews about Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy and all the detail that they went into. There's an interview with a magazine that's solely about production design that Alfredson did. And there's so much detail. There's such a large team. There's so much time. That is the thing. Alfredson works so well when he has a lot of time to figure out all this minutia that he puts into his movies. And it seems like on The Snowman, there just wasn't enough time. There are some shots and sequences that you think, wow, this is really detailed and this must have taken a lot of time. And I think that that ate into the quality of other scenes and shots. 
Like, for example, Mm -hmm. that scene that's just one shot of Harry and Oleg on the kind of above ground streetcar. It's a lateral tracking shot in perfect pace with the streetcar and it's zooming in on them. Yeah, it's that's a beautiful scene. That's an inspired scene. I think it's really great. And I think that more effort went into those that ended up eating into the rest of the shoot. I think there are some sequences Mm -hmm. like Val Kilmer getting to the mountaintop to find the body up there that I think (laughs) is pretty good. I think the ending with uh, the ice field is kind of cool. Yeah. Moments where you're like, I see what this could have been if there were more time. And I don't think that there was enough time. I think that's the problem. Or do you think, I don't know. I I just feel like they should have just chosen a a, a different book to adapt. (laughs) It feels like the source material for, for me at least was a big problem i don't i mean i've not read this the book maybe it's wildly different from the book maybe apparently the book is really popular i also am thinking about once alfredson moved away from sweden and started working in in hollywood he's he's working with these big studios with a lot of money behind them when they green light a project and when they green light a project for a specific time frame it like most of the time it has to be made within that specific time frame so you're still in the good graces with the studio execs or whoever's working at the studio sometimes that takes a toll on the quality of a film yeah it's hard to say if it is more how alfredson ended up meshing with that studio system or where he and the production team chose to put energy on which scenes got more attention you know it's sort of like in pre-production production and post-production you can look at things that didn't go smoothly and didn't have enough time i think that results in a movie that makes a lot of seemingly baffling choices that are that way simply because there wasn't enough time to do something else it's just a reminder that movies really do take a lot of time and love and attention to detail Mm -hmm. again i think it's a fluke for alfredson this does not define him but do you think that there is something you yourself, you chose it as the popular pick. So do you think that there is something special about this movie, how incredibly bad it is, that makes it so primed for meme creation online and which makes it Alfred Sisson's most popular film? That's a good question. Sorry, you don't have to answer that question. No, <laughs> I, I think that's that's worth thinking about. I chose it as the popular pick because of its notoriety online. You know, it is a meme, dear Mr. Police. (laughs) Maybe it's sort of a yes and no thing. If you don't look closely enough at Alfredson and his career, and if you don't watch Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy or Let the Right One In or his comedies, it can be easy to lock him into the snowman. Maybe that's how some of the Hollywood industry views him now. Maybe in that sense, but as a fan and as a lover of his craft, for me... For an audience member that is paying attention, I don't think the snowman matters. (laughs) (laughs) I clearly admire Alfredson a lot. I I think that he's an excellent director. So maybe with that, let's start talking about Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Yeah, let's do it. Tinker Tailor, sorry. A rough overview of the plot. It's 1973. We're in the world of British intelligence. It's the height of the Cold War. A mission goes awry. It's a covert operation to send a spy named Jim Prido to Hungary to find out the identity of a mole who has been planted at the top of the British intelligence system. That goes awry. Prido gets shot. 
and there's a big house cleaning that happens. George Smiley, a very composed intelligence official, gets swept out. He's sacked along with his boss who was in charge of this covert mission. So Smiley is our main character. He gets called back into the service under the radar to find this mole. And the movie is about him investigating what happened around the mission that went awry. He ends up putting the pieces together and finding out the identity of the mole by going on this series of interviews that lead into flashbacks from the subjectivity of the characters who are giving Smiley this information. There are a lot of apparent detours that end up adding up in the end. The movie really floats on its emotion and its mood and its incredible cinematography and sound. Alfredson pays incredible attention to detail with sound, and he has a whole philosophy around sound that he talks about. He likes to create silence around lines and specific sound effects. He says that, quote, I tried to surround sounds with silences as much as possible, to do something with it and make it recognizable. Sound today on film in general is too much of everything in scenes, and if you surround a sound with a lot of silence, you really hear the sound, and you also have to record the right sound, and you have to put a lot of effort into it. We played around with a lot of the sound perspective and enhanced stuff that really shouldn't be enhanced. Silence is a very important actor in sound editing to lift up certain things and actually hear them, and also on set to give space to the sound guys to have the possibility to record great sounds when you do it, end quote. It's all about pace. It's all about tone. Alfredson says, quote, color-wise, we tried to recreate the scent of damp tweed, end quote, <laughs> which I just love. And achieved it perfectly. With the camera, he says that, quote, we try to convey a way to express that there's a third eye in the room, like the voyeur's perspective, end quote. There's a lot of frame obstruction. I'm just throwing out techniques here as a way to illustrate the depth of care that went into the direction and craft of this movie. There's mm -hmm. so much to pick apart. There's so many details. It's a very fully realized world. Tell me more about your experience watching this movie. We've talked about the confusion, but tell me some scenes that you connected with or characters you connected with. What what you get out of it? You were talking about how uh, the the sound isolation and keying the audience in to like listen to specific sounds and the scene that jumps out at me is the beginning of the film where it flashes back to well it flashes back to the scene multiple times for the but the majority of the chunk of the scene happens at the start of the film when you see this operation in hungary go wrong right the spy is meeting with a hungarian delegate at a public cafe in this empty dome like it's pretty hollow this building and and you you hear the sounds echoing of birds chirping or the combination of insert shot coupled with the sound coming from that insert shot makes you really like key in on all the things that are going on around where the, the the main conversation is happening he's sort of like placing you in the role as like a spy and all in that you're noticing these things happening yeah and then you're figuring out maybe even before the character him, the spy himself figures out that something's not right there's a lot of focus on the sweat of the waiter. Yeah. Which is like a big like a big tip-off that everything is wrong. Something interesting for me watching that scene is that I don't know if y'all had the same response, but when the operation gets botched, shit hits the fan, people are running around, seems like agents are coming out of the woodwork to kind of deal with the situation. I had a very weird feeling like I just watched behind the scenes of a set. 
I love that. There's something about the way it is shot when one of the guys comes out, he's speaking in some other language. I'm not sure what it was. I, I don't know Russian? if it was Hungarian. I don't know. It could be Russian, right? Yeah. And he just runs in and he's like, oh, you Hungarian amateurs. He's running around like he's like the director and he's just run on the set and is screaming at everyone for fucking up everything. Like, I watched that scene twice and I felt it both times. This feeling like I can see the facades of the, the two buildings that flank the, the conversation that they're having. I don't know if it was something that was uh, done deliberately, but like it worked for me in a very hard to describe way, which is I think something that kind of covers the entire movie for me as an emotional experience. Like a lot of it works in a way that like on first brush, like on your first watch, it's hard to describe how it works, but it works. I am still picking up new information and details on my sixth or seventh watch. Truly, like there are things that I noticed this time around that I had not seen before. I was going to ask you when you approach this film and you're watching every scene, do you feel like you understand character motivations and like why they're doing what they're doing now that you've seen it so many times? And like, is it emotionally clear to you? Yeah, it is actually, I think. The fun thing is that because it's so restrained and there are often sometimes literal obstructions in front of performances Mm -hmm. you can pick up new nuances like it's a text that you can really return to and pick up more even if you understand the skeleton of it and why people are doing what they're doing when they're doing it i think a really important scene comes when george smiley asks peter gwillem played by benedict cumberbatch after he's gone on this mission to retrieve a ledger from the library of the British intelligence building. It's a big mission. Gwillem is exhausted. He's angry that he had to go through with this. And then Smiley tells him, from now on, you have to assume that you're being watched. If there's anything that you need to do to clean the house, do it. Which means that we cut to the next scene of Gwillem. We've seen him flirting with women in the office. And then he goes home to his flat and he breaks up with his boyfriend. It's a reveal for us, and it's an emotional moment. It's shot from behind a window, but it really is also thematically very important because it shows us the things that people have to hide in order to do this work, the cost of doing this work. Do you guys know the story of Kim Philby? No. I I was doing some reading about this. Um, I mean, I've read a few, like uh, two Lakari books. So I know a little bit about this, but uh, you can give us a bit of an education, Eli. Sure. This real-life story is an important piece of understanding the emotional goals of this movie. So Kim Philby was an important member of British intelligence, renowned amongst his colleagues. It turned out that he had been working for Moscow for decades, and he had given up maybe dozens of his peers. There were people who were his close friends and who counted him as their mentor, and he had been betraying them the whole time. Philby's actions before he was caught led to the dismissal of John le Carre, essentially blew his work. And le Carre partially had to leave the service because his identity, I believe, had had been blown in some sense by Philby. There's something that Peter Strawn, one of the screenwriters, says, who wrote the movie along with his late wife, Bridget O'Connor. Strawn says in an interview, quote, we wanted to focus on the human relationships and the human cost of it all, end quote. And Alfredson says, quote, for me, this is not a story mainly about the Cold War. It's about loyalty and friendship, end quote. This movie is structured through flashbacks where you get to experience the backstory of each character and the emotions of each character. 
as a way of walking you through the human cost for each person of this betrayal that the mole causes. That scene with Gwillem encapsulates that perfectly. And it also casts an inflection onto the ending of the movie when Jim Preto, the spy who was betrayed, takes some either, depending on how you look at it, revenge or a merciful killing of the mole. It's it's just such a dense network of meaning and emotion that is set up in this movie. Kind of circling back to Wilson's question, because you asked about like the emotional clarity after Eli, I watched it so many times. For me, I think that was one of the pieces of the film that I never struggled with on my first watch. Like it was immediately apparent for me how everyone felt, partially because the actors are all really good. And I have to say, Gary Oman does like an incredible and also incredibly subtle performance. Yes. It is awe-inspiring the way he plays the character. He does nothing, but then he shows everything in a sense. I was just like watching through it and the scene where um, Gwillem's really mad. He thinks that Smiley fucked up and they were betrayed by one of his agents mm-hmm. after he picks up a logbook, which he was really unhappy about. And he's punching Tom Hardy. Oman's characterization of George Smiley at the moment is like complete cool. Like he's completely cool. He is not phased and he signals to his other, the other guy that's working with them to go stop the fight. His face is barely moving. There's nothing going on, but you <laughs> see it. It leaps off the screen. It's like the tiniest cock of the heads. You know what I mean? It's like he just barely does anything. It feels like he commands the room. In Alfredson's first meeting with Gary Oldman to talk about casting him as Smiley, Alfredson told Oldman about this very brief scene in the car after they pick up Inspector Mendel, who's a character in, in some early Smiley books, to be a part of Smiley's investigation team. There's a bee in the car. Ugh. Alfredson told Oldman about the scene in which a bee's buzzing around. The couple of other people in the car are swatting it away. All Smiley does is open the window, just a crack, and the bee flies out. Yeah. And Oldman said that that says everything about Smiley that he needed to know and that it was all about economy of energy. <laughs> the way that character is played is so quiet, just smartly constructed performance and direction of that character are so great it's not an easy job to do a quiet or like a restrictive performance when it comes through so loud to the viewer even though he's doing so little it really speaks volumes about how gary oldman can control his body and and like the delivery of his lines and aside though like I thought he was terrible in Darkest Hour playing Winston Churchill. (laughs) I really disliked his portrayal of Winston Churchill in Darkest Hour because he kind of overplayed it. Those prosthetics and he's like being huge about the role. And I was just like, like, tone it down, man. (laughs) He's had some really big roles and he truly goes as minimal as possible here. There's so much expression that comes from his glasses and the way that things reflect off of them and you can mm-hmm. see the world around them. Alfredson says at some points you can see Hoyte van Hoytema's camera in the glasses, which I, I still haven't been able to notice, but apparently they're there. <laughs> if I'm not wrong, it seems like when he changes prescriptions, it goes from like something that makes his eyes small to something that makes his eyes really big. I didn't notice that. I feel like that's true. Somebody tell me <laughs> if I'm wrong. Someone correct that. I bet you're right. For glasses, for short-sightedness, it makes your eyes small. I know this because I have very bad myopia. But when you wear glasses for long-sightedness, it makes your eyes bigger because it's the opposite effect. 
And I'm pretty sure that that's what they did. I don't think it makes sense. Like, you shouldn't just yeah. flip from short to long-sightedness, but it kind of works. But hey, in the words of Colin Firth's character at the end of the film, it was an aesthetic choice. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but it's interesting that that's kind of like the smallest detail to kind of give you a sense of which part, like which part of the timeline you're in. Because that was the thing I struggled the most with. Like, I wasn't sure what's a flashback and what's not a flashback. The biggest one being Jim Credo's reveal that he's alive yeah. yeah i was very confused i thought it was a flashback really i thought it was pretty clear like you, you had the you had the sound effect of him breathing while laying down on the ground supposedly shot it, it made sense to me it was just a little unclear like it still worked for me and like after a while when the pieces come together then i'm like oh, okay i get what's going on now right while we're talking about glasses i want to talk about a different kind of glass lenses yeah <laughs> let's talk about it there are two lenses that Ben Hoytema uses that I want to draw our attention to. The first one is a 2000 millimeter lens that gets used <laughs> on the runway when yeah. Smiley is threatening Esterhouse. That's an all timer. That plane approaches down a mile long runway and it looks like it's the same size as the figures in the foreground. Incredible. I mean, it's a really good scene because it uses the lens and like the set design, which is the runway and like the art, which is the plane to really establish a point that is the undercurrent of the scene, mm -hmm. which is Esterhaz being threatened with deportation. It's all there on the screen and it's really well done. Yeah. The second lens that I want to point out, I believe it's a 50 millimeter lens. It's used on two shots. The first shot it's used on is when Smiley goes into controls flat for the first time and sees his face on a chess piece, meaning that he was suspected by control of being the mole. It's very close on Smiley's face, and the background is fuzzed out. The second time that lens is used is in the incredible centerpiece scene of Smiley talking to Gwillem about his experience meeting Carla. In this movie and all the George Smiley books, Carla is Smiley's nemesis. He's a Soviet spymaster. Carla's a figure who we never see his face. Same with Anne, Smiley's estranged wife. They're the two ghosts of the movie as Alfredson describes it, so we never see them. As Smiley is telling this story about meeting Carla, very important piece of backstory. Unlike the other characters, we don't see a subjective recreation of this flashback. We don't see the character going through the actions. It's just Smiley giving us this monologue in the room. And we mm -hmm. see that lens pop up again as Smiley is getting to the key point of the story. It's very close on his face once again. Oldman is looking not directly into the lens, slightly off. He sort of finishes the climax of this story, and then he leans back into his chair. I mean, in a movie of incredible scenes, yeah. that one might be my favorite, maybe. It's just so controlled. And they're both such striking compositions, even in a in a whole film filled with like beautiful shots. Those like stand out as like the shots of this movie. Like that's a iconic close up. I think the effect of that lens on Smiley and not on any other character encapsulates a lot of the movie again because it's a simultaneous mm -hmm. closeness to the character and distance. It's strangely close. His glasses block his eyes some even though you can see through them clearly there's some distortion there's just this strange combination of seeing an appearance and sensing a lot of undercurrent and kind of doubting what you're seeing a little bit and the room around him is fogged it's a way of using a lens choice 
to tie to the thematic point of the movie. And I admire that so much. I think the way we kind of get led into that shot is fantastic. Like the way we are brought into Smiley's Baller, which is also excellently performed. It starts on the single shot of Smiley and then it shifts to a fake two shot of him in an empty chair and it works really well. That shot was when I like sat up. Yeah. <laughs> like when it pans across to the empty chair, and I was like, something is going on here. Like something, it's very subtle. It really kind of piques your interest and he's doing something. That panning shot is a signal that feels very familiar, but the fact that it's an empty chair makes it very interesting. Like it's very in a way that makes you realize that this is a very key scene. And then using that lens choice to really emphasize that this conversation that he's talking about is critical to how the story plays out. And we don't know at the point in time when he talks about it that this is Carla that he's talking about but for Gwillem Gwillem knows exactly that that's what's happening mm -hmm. but especially if you don't know the context you don't get it but then when he says that you realize that okay Carla is obviously a very important figure in this kind of universe of the story another incredible part of this scene is that I know this for a fact that spies are good actors because they have to be because that's their job to save their lives but it's so rare in thriller or spy movies where you actually see a spy being good at acting and when he's having that conversation with Carla I was just like whoa Smiley is a good actor and, <laughs> and it's just like the depths and the layers of that performance in that particular moment is astounding I agree have you guys seen footage of Clint Eastwood speaking at the Republican National Convention in 2012. I've seen the photo. No, that's very specific. It's Eastwood monologuing to an empty chair as if Obama were sitting in that chair. It's a ridiculous <laughs> moment in American politics. I wonder if because it was 2012, if Eastwood saw Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, saw that monologue of <laughs> Smiley speaking to Carla in an empty chair and was like, hmm, Obama. <laughs> I'm thinking a lot about like the things about this movie that are a bit confusing for me. Like what? Like the, the key location of this movie is the house. It's the house where they meet counterpart of the mall from Moscow side. Early on in the film, there is a very quick scene of that house. Upon like kind of rewatching it, I was like, why did he show us this? Because I remember watching it and being completely confused as to what I was looking at. And then the scene just ends. So it's just the woman that lives in the house or she's the one that takes care of the house and she has a dog in the house as well. And there's a very short scene where you just see her in the house and the dog is barking at somebody entering the house. You don't really see who enters the house and then the scene ends. In that scene, Ben, Polyakov also enters the house. So you at least get confirmation that Polyakov is part of this spy ring. Yeah, I mean, I didn't really recognize Polyakov at that point in time, right? Yeah. It's a weird choice because like, it gives you information that is hard to decipher and hard to figure out what to do with. And then it just kind of goes to the back of my mind and I just kind of forget about it. But on like a rewatch kind of thing, it kind of makes more sense. But I personally don't know if it needed to be there. There's something that Alfredson says, which is that, quote, even though it's a very calm pace, a lot of things are happening in the film and a lot is happening in your head, end quote. It's definitely too much to keep track of if you haven't seen it multiple times. Yeah. No, definitely. You know, there's a whole conversation that we could have around, does a movie have to be perfectly clear on a first watch? I don't agree with that philosophy. I, I like having to go back and do digging. There are important elements of it, like mood, that are very accessible on a first watch. 
you can mm-hmm. return for information if you want. Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy weirdly reminded me of films like A Brighter Summer Day or A City of Sadness from Edward Yang and Ho Xiao Shen in that they contain like such vast worlds within them, um, whether it be for the amount of, of characters in the Yang film or in Tinker Tailor's Soldier Spy, the amount of characters or like the, the amount of like plot that sort of gets like dropped in at different places that you have to work to to piece together not just through one watch but through multiple watches and maybe reading things it's very rare where i personally watch a movie and can forgive not having narrative clarity what is going on in the moment which at times this movie like did give me but i would excuse it for these movies because the tone of it is so great for for different reasons it has a such a strong grasp of commanding your emotions the the fact that my brain is like i don't understand what's going on and i can just let 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 that slide the emotional clarity of the characters helps a lot in making things make sense Mm -hmm. spoiler alert the mole which is bill (laughs) big spoiler alert (laughs) I watched the film and I had a very strong sense that he was the mole. Ah, interesting. And I don't know why. Wow. I thought it was Percy the entire time. (laughs) (laughs) It's the kind of thing where like Percy is so obviously an idiot that it shouldn't be him, right? (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Ben. (laughs) But it's not really this like puzzle thing. I wasn't trying to like take all the information. It was a very emotional feeling like Bill is going to be the one because Bill, something's off with him, right? And... I was looking at the party scene, and the party scene is very important because it's a flashback that we return to multiple times and a bunch of reveals in it. And there's a part in the party scene where Bill acknowledges Smiley. Mm -hmm. It's a very short interaction, and it felt very strange because I don't think we get that with Smiley and the other people, like Bland, Alaline, Asterhas. Like, we don't get that with the other three. And so there's that feeling that there is something going on between him and Bill that it's hard to pin down and it kind of builds a little bit and we see Bill and his relationship with Jim and that also puts a target on him. So there's a lot of things like that kind of start narrowing the focus a little bit, but you can't really, I couldn't really figure out why I had this feeling because mm-hmm. most of the time when we look at Esther Haas, Bland and Alaline, it's from a close up that doesn't necessarily feel like a point of view shot from Smiley. So it doesn't feel like it's centered in his perspective, but that connection moment between him and Bill in that party scene has that connection. Right. That kind of makes Bill seem shady. There's something that you can't know about Bill and Smiley's relationship the first time around. Le Carre writes a lot about how home is never safe for Smiley, which you definitely see here. But one of the ways mm-hmm. in which home is infiltrated by Bill Hayden is, of course, the affair that Bill has with Anne, Smiley's wife, to throw Smiley off of Hayden's trail. As an object to represent that, there's the painting that Hayden gives to Smiley, which Alfredson says Hayden had painted, that is in an early scene hanging on Smiley's wall. And Smiley's just staring at it. Like he can feel what's going on, but he can't put his finger on it. Wait, that's the frame where Alfredson's director title goes up on. Really? Like the credit roll and then the last credit, which is directed by Thomas. I'm pretty sure because that's why it stood out to me. That's a great catch, Wilson. 
That's wow. great. I didn't know how I caught that. <laughs> it's like a little little hint. But yeah, Ben, just like that kind of little tip of the hat, there are definitely, there's a vibe around Hayden. There's something that I noticed on this watch, which I hadn't before. During everyone's flashbacks, you experience that flashback from the perspective of the person giving that flashback. Yeah, the narrative range is limited to, to just the person telling the story. Exactly. When Connie's telling her story, we experience that sequence from her perspective. When Ricky's telling his story, we experience that sequence from his perspective. When Jerry Westerby is telling his story, Jerry Westerby played by Stephen Graham, when he's telling his story of what happened the night that Preto was shot, Bill Hayden comes into the scene and interacts with Jerry Westerby. They go to Jim Preto's flat to clear it out. We get a moment from Bill Hayden's subjectivity in that sequence with Jerry Westerby, where Hayden is going through Jim's apartment and he finds an old photo of Jim and Bill together and he pockets it. Hmm. Interesting moment. Yes. It's just like those little things that don't add up for Bill that then do add up. It's like those directorial choices are giving us the inclination, the hints that Smiley is getting that point towards Bill. It's honestly brilliant because like, I don't know how you would, as a director, figure out that this will work. Yeah. I like, don't know if this was the plan, but it definitely had the effect on me. And what I realized is that this is exactly how Smiley and Jim feel. Yeah. I think it was Smiley who says, like, deep down, he knew. Hayden tells that to Smiley in the final scene. Yes. And also deep down, Jim knew. They just had a feeling. Deep down, they already knew. And I'm like, yeah, that's me. I, I felt you. Colin Firth, you're too good looking. You're, uh-huh. you're too nice looking. You know, something's <laughs> wrong with you. <laughs> it's hard to break down in it, which is why it works. Because there's a bit of that kind of movie magic going on that makes it a good movie. Right. I have a narrative clarity question. Go for it. In the timeline of things happening, when does this Christmas party happen where he finds out that Bill's sleeping with his wife? That might be one of the earliest things that happens in the timeline. Chronologically, one of the earliest scenes. Okay, okay. Yeah. It comes before Prido gets shot, certainly. It precedes all the Budapest. Okay. It's like before everything, before Control and Smiley get pushed out. Right. That's why everyone's yeah. there. Everything, everyone's happy, which Connie talks about, right? Everyone's like happy and friendly and like she remembers them all as like certain kinds of guys. Yeah. And then also, our Bill and Jim, they're not like, there's no like romantic. <laughs> I feel like there has to be, but. Because when Hayden's like getting caught and he's like telling Gary Oldman's character I'm, I'm so bad with these characters names but like to take care of things he's just like oh I there's a girl give her this and make sure it's okay tell her that I love her if that makes her feel better and then there's also a boy and I was like oh interesting I don't think that boy is Jim Preto but I think it plants the seeds that allows you to draw that connection right you mentioned that every time we return to this Christmas party we learn something new in that fantastic ending montage set to a cover of La Mer by Julio Iglesias, we return to that Christmas party once more. And the information that we get is just Hayden and Preto locking eyes from across the room. And there's something passing Mm -hmm. between them. Jim deep down knows that Hayden's the mole, but I do think that there's a romantic past for them. When Preto shoots Hayden in the end, I think that that's a mercy killing. And I think that there's some love getting sent along with a bullet as well. I feel that. Yeah, there are those tears coming out of his eyes. It's incredible. Yeah, he's crying as he shoots him. Oh man, there's so much going on with Jim in that scene in the at the Christmas party. What I kind of inferred is that Bill sleeping with Anne is not a secret for anyone else. Everyone knows he's doing it. 
And to me, Jim knows it. And that's why there's a kind of aching sensation between him and Bill. That if they were lovers before, seeing Bill sleep with Anne feels off because he knows that there's a very strong connection between the two of them, right? Yeah. Mm. I don't know. That's kind of how I read that scene. Okay, I'm adding this film to my queer film canon. <laughs> One second. <laughs> I really just cannot not read it as them being lovers of some sort. Me too. I agree. I, it really struck, yeah, that note for me. That final scene is so great. Yeah, that's a chef's kiss of a scene. Amazing montage. Great choice of music. Yeah. It's like a cascade of all the feelings and all the relationships all coming down at once. Yeah. All the disappointment. An emotional crescendo. It's just a reminder what everyone has lost. You see Connie again. You see Ricky again. Everyone has lost something because of this investigation. Like Gwillem and Smiley end up at the top of the circus again so that they can continue their work. But everyone else has lost something, has lost relationships. Also, that song choice, I think, is important. It's a cover of La Mer, which was popular in World War II in Britain. So you can imagine it being part of that sort of happy memory that Connie describes of World War II and when, quote, Englishmen could be proud. You can imagine it being popular then, and this remake might feel like a hollow imitation or a reminder of the ways in which things have worsened. And also just the dissonance of it being such a happy, cheery song and seeing all this misery is Mm -hmm. kind of fascinating. It's kind of a perfect cap on the movie that I don't think I appreciated as much my first couple watchings. I can't wait to revisit this film again. It was made to be rewatched over and over again to get more and more information. I just think this is a film that just will get better every time I watch it. I can promise you that it does. <laughs> I do feel feel worried about this man's career in Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> because even though I, I feel like all three of us are agreed in the fact that the snowman was like a misstep for him as a director, I do think that the studios will be less forgiving, which I'm glad that he is returning to Sweden now to, to, to make his, his next project. But... I I really do hope he gets to make bigger budget things in the future because I feel like he is a director that should be regarded as highly as as maybe Nolan is, who who has these intricate films with really Mm. complex-seeming plots that audiences like to eat up. And I I, I think if audiences are are served something similar to Tinker Tailor Soldier's Spy with that emotional resonance that I feel like has been missing in in Tenet, for example, I do think that Alfredson should be the European man that Hollywood gets behind. Sorry, that's my call to action. (laughs) Nolan's movies lean towards complex event structures, but Alfredson definitely leans more towards complex emotional interiority. And I appreciate that a lot more. I also hope that he gets to have bigger budgets again someday. There was going to be a sequel to Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy based on the third in the Carla trilogy called Smiley's People with some of the same cast. It's such a loss to me that I don't think we're going to get that movie now. Uh, So The reason why I don't think he has a career in Hollywood is because he doesn't approach the source material the same way as other filmmakers, which is a good thing. I was reading about this for Let the Right One In. These are all adaptations, these three films. 
Netherite One In is also based on a, on a book. And his film is based on a very small section of the book that he focuses on the relationship between the boy and the young-looking vampire. The thing that we've kind of been hovering around is that all his films are about human connections, about human relationships. And uh, you have that quote where his films are about human relationships. And that's the thing that he pulls out of the source material. That's why I feel like it doesn't work for Hollywood because Hollywood just cares about plot. And he throws out a lot of plot to focus on connections. And I think that's why Tinker Taylor is confusing because he's not giving you all the steps because the steps are not important. Mm -hmm. The relationships are more important and how those relationships change. Same thing he does with Let the Right One In where he really cares about the relationship between the child and the vampire. Okay, now do the snowman, Ben. Do the snowman. And now (laughs) I think that's why he runs into problems with the snowman because the snowman's plot is just incomprehensible which just throws you off and then when he digs into the relationships which is why he spends so much time with Harry Hole and the the kid Oleg right there's just so much time spent on this relationship that no one gives a shit about I think that's the misstep and I think but I think that's why this is the misstep that Alfredson took that he was trying to get to the human relationships but the human relationships weren't very interesting or that wasn't a way to make them make sense because either the source material didn't make it work or like the writing wasn't able to figure out how this matters to the plot. I feel like that's the misstep that he takes and which is why it still feels like an Alfredson film almost. Right. Here's the source material, but let's care more about the human stuff and that he threw out too much plot. Like maybe that's 10-15%. Threw out so much that it just was too incomprehensible to really understand what's going on. That's my theory. <laughs> Yeah, that, that makes sense to me. But I do think that because, Eli, you, you said earlier that Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy was a commercial success. And it, it was, like, nominated for a few Oscars, right? Correct. And so I do think there's, like, a chance. I think it's also Alfredson's name that got Fassbender and that, the, the actors that he got for The Snowman. So I do think there was, like, goodwill in him and and, and i feel like there's still hope that he could maybe make a comeback i hope so i think we'll see what happens with his next movie which is called say oop uh (laughs) wait i gotta get i gotta (laughs) say oops 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 (laughs) i have hope for his next movie which is going to be called look out for the johnson gang which is based on a series of comedic swedish heist films it's a reboot it remains a question, will he have an arc of redemption? Will he right. continue to have movies in Sweden exclusively? You know, I don't know. But no matter what he does next, I'm going to be there for it. I'm an Alfredson fan for sure. Alfredson head. <laughs> He's an Alfredson. Son, son. There it is. I'm an Alfred stan. And on that note, I think it's about time. To wrap it up. (laughs) Thank you for listening to this episode of Deep Cut. Please rate and review because that helps us keep making the show. Be sure to subscribe to us where you listen to podcasts so you'll know when our next episode drops. You can give us a follow on Twitter and Instagram at Deep Cut Pod. Thank you to Justina Yam for our beautiful artwork. Come chat with us about movies in our Discord server. You'll find a link in the description for this episode. Take care, and we're looking forward to talking about more movies with you next time. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. See you again next time.
Hi folks, Eli here one more time. Ben, Wilson, and I recorded this episode on the morning of December 13th, 2020, and that evening, John le Carre's passing was announced in the press. It's not much, but I would like to dedicate this episode to the memory of John le Carre, alias David Cornwall. And if you'll forgive me the indulgence, I'd like to read some of my favorite quotations of his from his writing. From the 1965 novel, The Looking Glass War. Do you know what love is? I'll tell you. It is whatever you can still betray. We ourselves live without it in our profession. We don't force people to do things for us. We let them discover love. From the 1974 novel, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Look, we're getting to be old men, and we've spent our lives looking for the weaknesses in one another's systems. I can see through Eastern values just as you can see through our Western ones. Both of us, I am sure, have experienced ad nauseum the technical satisfactions of this wretched war, but now your own side is going to shoot you. Don't you think it's time to recognize that there is as little worth on your side as there is on mine? From the 2016 autobiographical essay collection, The Pigeon Tunnel. Spying and novel writing are made for each other. Both call for a ready eye for human transgression and the many routes to betrayal. Those of us who have been inside the secret tent never really leave it. Also from The Pigeon Tunnel. Spying was forced on me from birth much in the way, I suppose, that the sea was forced on C.S. Forrester or India on Paul Scott. Out of the secret world I once knew, I have tried to make a theater for the larger worlds we inhabit. First comes the imagining, then the search for the reality, then back to the imagining, and to the desk where I'm sitting now. I'd like to imagine David Cornwell still sitting at his desk now, continuing to write. To me, he was one of the great novelists, fascinated by the question of why people do the strange things that they do. I still have many of his books left to read, and I'm excited to read them, and I hope that you do too. Thank you to John Le Carre.